Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest in the studio today is Jonathan Rausch. He's a senior fellow in governance studies and the author of six books and many more articles about public policy, culture, and government. His most recent book from the Brookings Institution Press is Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy. John is also a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic. His latest article for The Atlantic on the cover of the July-August issue is titled, How American Politics Went Insane. Stay tuned after the interview for another Metro Lens, featuring Devashree Saha, who talks about crashing oil prices and the impact on state and metro economies, particularly in Houston and in Texas statewide. And now here to talk about his Atlantic article is Jonathan Rausch. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. How American politics went insane. Not how American politics is dysfunctional or is broken, but insane. It's a provocative title. What tells you that American politics has gone insane? Fred, this is the first year ever where of the four final big candidates, Clinton, Sanders, Cruz, Trump, three out of the four were renegades, people without much support, if any, in their own party establishment. People in two cases, Trump and Sanders, who were not even part of their own party. This is something completely new. This is total organizational chaos. In the article, you uh, you've, you write that the political parties, quote, no longer have either intelligible boundaries or enforceable norms. Uh, many voters might seem to like that. What does that mean, and uh, how does that go into your thesis here? So parties exist in order to hold politicians accountable to each other. So you're a member of Congress. I'm a leader in Congress. I need your vote on something difficult like debt limit bill or keeping the government open. And I come to you and say, do that for the party. And here's maybe a new runway for the airport in your district. Um, we'll help you with some money, your reelection. We'll help you in your primary, give you some endorsements. So that's kind of how politics is meant to work, people doing things for each other in order to organize coalitions and get compromises done and vote. When that breaks down, you get pretty much unaccountability. It's every person for him or herself. You get a kind of renegade politics. That's what we've seen in Washington emerging over the last few years. So every budget bill, every debt limit bill becomes a full-on crisis. And out in the campaign trail, the people who are getting the furthest are not the people who play well with others. They're the people who don't play well with others. I want to get into the, the causes of this uh, insanity here in a minute, but let's go back into history because your article, in your article, you touch on the history of politics a lot. It's fascinating. Um, you, you call political parties sort of a second constitution. You say the constitution itself is a recipe. Uh, by itself, the constitution is a recipe for chaos. So there's this unwritten constitution, politics. What's that all about? And when did it show up in our uh, national discourse? So the Constitution is really good at making politicians accountable to voters. The part it left out, parliamentary systems in other countries actually wire in, is making politicians accountable to each other. And that's the part that allows leaders to lead and encourages followers to follow. So we did that informally with things like political parties, political machines, political bosses, um, pork barrel spending smoke-filled rooms. None of this stuff looked very pretty, but it was all an informal system that allowed politicians to 
make coherent groups so that they could work together as a team. We Basically, the two-party system is fundamentally about that. That developed starting right away in the 1790s, and it really started to firm up in the days of Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. We began to get the modern party system, and we've relied on it ever since to do the job not just of electing but of governing. But so over the, especially the course of the 20th century, uh, these kinds of manifestations of political parties, the smoke-filled rooms and the backroom deals and the pork barrel politics, have been reformed almost out of existence. Now, you call that well-meaning reforms. In fact, you, you reference uh, when you were watching the Watergate trials in the 70s as a, as a young person that you were all for that. But that's most people would be for those kinds of reforms because they just seem bad, right? Yeah, right. The thing about political machines and parties and backroom deals and all of what I call middlemen, all of these people who work in the background to organize politics, is when they work well, we forget that we need them. We just assume that what happens is we vote and then the politicians go vote and the problem solved. We forget all these multiple things that have to go on. Someone has to recruit and vet the candidates, make sure they're competent people. And then they have to organize these people when they get in government. They have to direct money. They have to move the coalitions around, get people together, get them on the same page, strike compromises within the coalition, then go out and compromise outside the coalition. That's the hard stuff. When it works, it's like our immune system. We take it for granted. We figure we don't particularly need all these, you know, smoke-filled rooms. So we started holding up each and every one of these things that people were doing to the light. And we said, well, that doesn't look necessary. It's not democratic. It seems kind of corrupt. And one by one, we reformed away all of the elements that professional politicians have to use in order to organize their world. So um, I want to follow up on the, the one reform uh, that we've been talking about here for a minute, that, and it's the smoke-filled rooms. Can you talk a little bit more about... Um, how smoke-filled rooms are actually or were beneficial in some sense to the governance process. You've written a paper about this. Yeah, smoke-filled rooms were a bad word for private negotiations. And that's where leaders within parties and between parties would get together behind closed doors and say, look, Fred, you need this and I need that. What do you need to get this done? The thing about a complicated deal like that, it's going to involve, if it's something like a congressional budget or an appropriations bill or anything, really, it's going to involve many, many players. And nothing is settled until everything is settled. If you open all that up to public view, so each and every step of the negotiation is met by a hailstorm of interest groups telling you don't do that, or everything is under the microscope, so you're constantly posturing, it gets difficult, if not impossible, to do the basic job of striking bargains. The New York Times determined recently that only 9% of Americans voted for either Trump or Clinton in the, uh, in the recent primary and caucus season. Um, why is participation in the primary process so low? Participation in primaries has always been low because most people are busy and they're not particularly interested in voting inside the party. The people who dominate primary selection tend to be purists and people with parochial and narrow interests. Um, the most fierce people on both sides, not representative at all. Possibly, Fred, the single most important change that we made in our era of reform 
was switching to a very strong role for political primaries. That removed a whole lot of the power that parties and professionals once had to decide who their own candidates would be. Logical extension of that, since very few people actually vote in primaries, is Donald Trump. A few people decide who all the rest of us get to vote for, and those people turn out to be less representative than the smoke-filled rooms ever were. You made uh, an example of Eric Cantor, former House Majority Leader, who lost in his primary race to a relative unknown. How is that emblematic of uh, this kind of um, shift in, in the politics? Most congressional seats are gerrymandered, so they're safe in general elections. And that means what members of Congress really worry about is getting challenged in a primary. Primary challenges, if you're a conservative, are likely to come from your right, not from the center. And if you're a liberal, from your left, not from the center. So these guys are constantly looking over their shoulder, worried that if they take a vote for compromise, if they work with, say, the other party, or even if they vote with leadership— on something that might help keep the government open, they'll get challenged in a primary. So that makes it much harder for leadership to get anything done. I know this is a little off topic from your excellent article, uh, but it goes back to this idea of um, the two major parties versus what we call third parties. We see Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, and others. Um, I know people who have said, well, I don't like either of the choices that we have in the two major parties, but how can we make a third party viable? Do you think a third party or a fourth party, whatever we call them, is ever possible, is ever viable in this system that we have? We have a winner-take-all system, and in a winner-take-all system, a vote for a third party is, in practice, a vote for the candidate you like the least. So in our system, I don't think a third party is viable. But if you could indulge me to make a somewhat broader point about this, Fred, because it comes up all the time, why not have a third party or a fourth party or a fifth party? Fred, as I see it, what's happening right now is not ordinary politics. We are seeing the catastrophic meltdown of one of the two major political parties we've got. It is no longer able to organize coherently. It is no longer able to do the basic work of selecting candidates that its own people are comfortable with. It cannot, can barely govern in Congress. We have never in this country been in a situation where one of the two major political parties has had an organizational meltdown, and we need to fix that. It is not a time to daydream about having third parties. It is a time to focus on fixing the party system that we've got. You wrote, uh, to this point, Trump didn't cause the chaos. The chaos caused Trump. What we are seeing is not a temporary spasm of chaos, but a chaos syndrome. The whole article is is kind of a uh, uses the... Uh, metaphor of a uh, of a diseased body politic. So if it's diseased, um, what are some of the cures? Took a long time for us to get here. It's been 40, 50 years of step-by-step deliberate efforts and non-deliberate efforts to get here. So no magic bullets, no miracle cures, no heaven-sent vaccines is the first thing. That said, It is not all that difficult mechanically to unwind a lot of the changes that we've made over the last few decades that made it so hard to organize politics. You could allow money to flow into the parties in very large quantities. That's probably the best place for money to go. That would give the parties more say and weaken the special interests. You could increase the role rather than decrease the role of party insiders in choosing their nominee. That would make sure nominees are more accountable to other politicians and to the process of governing. Um, You can 
go back to a stronger appropriation system, allow earmarks once again on Capitol Hill to make it easier to trade pork, which is an important part of getting things done. We can rethink some of the rules that put cameras all over the place and require open recorded votes. All of these things are mechanically very doable. They don't solve the problem, but they start moving us in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. The harder thing, Fred, is to begin changing our mentality, the mentality that says whenever you see a political middleman or a party or a political machine or a boss, get rid of it. We've got to start understanding those things are and were and always will be important, and we've got to strengthen them, not weaken them. Would it be making uh, too much uh to say we're talking about kind of reestablishing the norms of a representative democracy or a republic versus a a straight-on democracy? Well, it's all democracy. Um, It's a question of style of democracy. The founders wanted a mixed system. They had one House of Congress that was directly elected, but no one else was directly elected. They wanted intermediaries to translate between the voters and the people. We've moved very much in the direction of direct selection of candidates, for example, since then. And I think we're coming to see that the founders were right. You do need mediation. You get better representation when you have people thinking about the interests of folks who don't vote in primaries. That's what professionals do. So yeah, we need to have a mixed system and I think move the balance a bit more toward representation. You, you make a really... Um striking argument uh, in the paper, in the article, Uh, but you admit that the public is, quote, wedded to an anti-establishment narrative. It kind of feels like um, with with Trump being the candidate of the Republican Party, with so many people disliking Hillary Clinton, the candidate of the Democratic Party, that uh, these kind of structural reforms just aren't ever going to happen. It's like we're stuck. Well, never is a long time, Fred. I (laughs) People say that. I remind them that uh, 20 years ago, I got started in the gay marriage debate as an advocate for same-sex marriage. And at the time, that seemed like a completely insane thing to do. Right now, the general mood is very anti-party, very anti-establishment. But something else is happening, too, which is a lot of people are looking at the complete chaos in the political system. They're looking at the emergence of, of Trump. And they're looking at the inability of basic government functions to get organized enough to work, and they're getting scared. They're starting to think something is really wrong there. This article that I just wrote in Atlantic has done spectacularly well. It's the first issue of Atlantic ever to sell out on the newsstand and have to go out for reprinting. So there is a real appetite now to start doing some rethinking. Um, The reaction of the article has been on both the left and the right. It's not, not ideological, not partisan, surprisingly receptive. And a lot of people understand instinctively that politics does involve some horse trading. It does involve both leaders and followers. You know, this is the world of our parents and grandparents. It's not so alien to us. So, yeah, I think it'll take some time, but I think a rethink is already starting to happen. Well, great. I uh, I really appreciate your time today. It is a terrific article. Uh, Listeners of this podcast, you will enjoy this article. You will love it. You will learn a lot from it. So you can find a link to it from our website, brookings.edu. Jonathan Rausch, I want to thank you again for your insight and time today. Thank you, Fred. It's fun. Visit our website, brookings.edu, to learn more about Jonathan Rausch and his research. You can find a link to his article, How American Politics Went Insane, on this episode's webpage, and also a link to his book, Political Realism. 
And now, here's Devashree Saha with another Metro Lens. I'm Devashree Saha, an Associate Fellow at Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. The stunning fall in oil prices from a peak of $115 per barrel in June 2014 to under $45 at the end of July this year has been one of the most important global macroeconomic developments of the last two years. The reason for crashing oil prices boils down to simple economics of demand and supply. Oil production remains high, with United States domestic production having nearly doubled over the last several years. To counter this, traditional oil-producing nations have flooded the market with oil to make U.S. production less profitable. On the demand side, the economic slowdown in Europe and China has reduced the demand for oil. At the same time, vehicles are becoming more energy efficient. The result is a massive price drop. While the average consumer is enjoying the benefits of lower costs at the pump, the dramatic price drop has shocked the world economy and is having negative impact on some state and metro economies in the country. For states that are top energy producers, the crash in oil prices has led to a loss of tax revenues and big budget shortfalls. According to Moody's, Alaska, North Dakota, West Virginia, and Wyoming have slipped into recession. The economies of Louisiana, Oklahoma, and New Mexico are struggling too. What about Texas, which is the leading crude oil-producing state in the nation? The drop in oil prices is having a marked impact on the Texas economy too. Even though the state's diversified economy and sectors beyond oil and gas are helping Texas continue its growth. Falling prices are having a direct impact on oil and gas investment, as reflected by the Texas active rig count. The number of rigs operating in Texas has fallen from over 850 at the end of 2014 to a little over 200 at the end of July this year. Now, assuming that each rig involves roughly $75 million in annual operating costs, the loss of over 600 rigs amounts to a massive $40 billion drop in Texas investment during this period. Not surprisingly, this has sparked massive layoffs in the state oil and gas industry, with 65,000 jobs lost in 2015 alone. The employment impact is not limited to the oil and gas industry alone. According to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, every oil and gas job in Texas supports 2.8 other jobs in the state economy. In other words, the loss of 65,000 oil and gas jobs translates into 250,000 job losses across the overall state economy. The impact of low oil prices is having a varied impact on Texas metro areas, but is particularly being felt strongly in Houston. 
Houston is the U.S. energy headquarters and a world center for virtually every segment of the oil and gas industry, such as exploration, production, transmission, marketing, and supply. Nearly 5,000 energy-related companies are located within Houston Metro, including some of the largest energy companies, such as Shell Oil and ConocoPhillips, earning Houston the name of Petro Metro. Now, Houston's economy has diversified significantly since the 1980s oil bust, but energy still remains the driver of Houston's economy, supporting direct and indirect jobs across several industries and pay grades. The energy boom helped support roughly 350,000 new jobs from 2011 through June 2014, when Houston regularly ranked as a national leader for job creation. Much of that growth came as oil hovered around $100 or more a barrel. Since June 2014, however, as oil prices have fallen to levels not seen since mid-2004, job growth in Houston Metro has also slowed considerably. Based on data from Bureau of Labor Statistics, Houston Metro reported a net addition of just 23,000 jobs in 2015, nearly an 80% decline from 2014. Core energy-related industries have shed jobs during the same period. Apart from employment impact, Houston's economy is being hit on other fronts too. The pace of oil and gas bankruptcies has picked up as oil and gas companies find it hard to survive the downturn. The oil bust has had a chilling effect on Houston's commercial office and residential real estate market. Construction of commercial office space has slowed down, energy companies are subleasing unused office space, and home construction permits have plunged. There is no clear indication yet when oil prices, drilling activity, and ultimately energy sector employment will recover. Department of Energy projections suggest that high global crude oil inventories won't ease this year all of which means that the worst isn't over for state and metro economies with higher exposure to oil and gas industry. Debashree is a co-author with Mark Miro of a report on how states can deal with economic changes brought on by fracking. Mark was a guest on this podcast recently, so go find that and download it. You can also listen to more MetroLens pieces on our SoundCloud channel. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Vanessa Sauter, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. I said goodbye to Zach Colzer a couple of weeks ago, and now I have to do it again, twice. First, to our great intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. Best of luck to you, and thanks for all your help. And farewell as well to Carissa Nitschi, who coordinated everyone's schedules and kept the show on track. I'm sorry to see you leave, but glad that you'll be joining Hoya Nation. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places, now including iHeartRadio. You can send feedback to me at bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.